I don't know if it's a true sign or a apocryphal one, but allegedly in some research university there is a sign that says, do not look at laser with remaining eye. <laughs> the section in Luke we are enjoining today in Luke chapter 17 is a collection of warnings and instructions. In a way, it doesn't even fit in the flow in some degree. It's a little bit of a staccato, a choppy section of, we might call them more proverbs than narrative. Because of the brevity of each of the four, it causes many to scratch their heads and go, how does this work? How does this fit in the gospel story? One of the things we will always try to continue to encourage you in when you read your Bible is to look at the text carefully, ask questions, bombard the text, and especially you need to understand the context in which something is written. In chapter 16, Jesus was speaking to a larger audience that had opponents, enemies as part of the audience. In chapter 17, verse 1, you see, he said to his disciples. So now he's speaking to a smaller group. It could be exclusively the 12, or it might be a larger group of those who are following him along with the 12 at that point. But these are his followers, his students, those who want to follow him, who want to believe in him, who want to do as he has been teaching. And from now on, the gospel narrative, primarily he's speaking to the disciples, although there are those with an earshot in the story. Now, as we look at the context of these back-and-forth experiences with enemies, with those who are after him, with his friends, with good questions that Jesus receives, there's a context and a fabric of dailiness that we don't read in the Bible. The Bible would be 25,000 volumes long if we read every single thing he did and said on every occasion. So as we look at the context, we see an ebb and flow of him moving in chapter 16 to 17. And so my best estimate is this is a summary. This is a collection of things he's saying as he's come off of some of the issues they've addressed, some of his enemies they've combated, and now he's giving some clarifying small proverbial length instructions and warnings to the disciples about how they are to understand their role as a disciple. The first one is a warning about false teachings. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard." Now, the dire warning is that there is inevitability to stumbling blocks. Inevitability means we are in a fallen context, a fallen world, a fallen culture. When Adam fell, he fell far. It affects all of us. And so there will be sin and stumbling blocks along the way. Stumbling blocks is the word scandalon. You've probably heard preachers or Bible teachers talk about that word in English. We graft it in as a scandal. And we think of a scandal in salacious, scandalous kind of newspaper news. But a scandal is an Old Testament concept brought into the new that meant a trap. In fact, it's used of the psalmist where he talks about, God, uh, they've set a trap for me. Let them be caught in their own trap. That's the sense of a scandal. In fact, you may remember recently in the news where some man 
apparently with some uh, uh, mental health problems, had, sur- had, had built his home with all these booby traps to keep people from coming into his house and inadvertently set off one of his own booby traps and killed himself. Uh, that's the idea of a scandalon, that you're setting a trap and you're going to fall into it and woe to you who because you teach the wrong thing make someone else fall into one of these traps. The offense here is causative. It's more than hurt feelings. And he likens it to a millstone. Now, when you go to Israel, we'll take you to Capernaum, and you can see some of the millstones that are around. There are olive presses, there are wine presses, there are millstones, there are different grain kinds of millstones. But Capernaum, more than likely, is the historic place where he's telling these stories. This passage parallels uh, Matthew 18 quite neatly. And so you envision him walking around, and they're all over. They're littered all over Capernaum. So there was a large area where they were milling there. And it would be better for you to take one of these, uh, put a rope through it, tie it around your neck, and toss yourself into Capernaum, which in the next slide you'll see is less than a quarter of a mile. In fact, if you walk straight from the middle of Capernaum into the Sea of Galilee, it would take you just a couple of moments and you'd be in the waters of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is telling everyday stories that everyone in the audience would completely comprehend. It'd be better for you to take a millstone, secure it to your neck. The mafia would say we're making a pair of cement shoes. Get him a cement overcoat. Let him swim with the fishes. It'd be better for you to be drowned than to make one of my little ones cause to fall into a trap. Now, for those of us who teach the Bible, whether you're teaching children or you teach for a living or you teach adults, this passage ought to give you some pause. When I teach preachers and workshops and pastors on teaching the Bible and how to study and write sermons and so forth, I often will tell them some very personal stories. And I say, if there's ever a week that goes by that I'm not somewhat scared to death about what I'm going to do, I'm not talking about stage fright. I'm talking about taking this book and opening it in front of a group of people and saying, God says this. If you're not somewhat terrified doing that, you probably shouldn't do it. Because it's inevitable that you will teach error. It's inevitable. There's no perfect Bible teacher except Jesus. So we have a problem right at the beginning. He's telling his disciples, be on guard when you teach people that you're teaching them clearly. When Cindy and I lead small groups and, and try to train folks how to read the Bible, we say that the Bible is the only thing that has authority. Your experiences don't have any authority. Your experiences are just experiences. If you had an experience and this and that and this and that happened and it all worked out, you say, wow, God led me through that experience. You can say that if you want to, but I wouldn't say it. Because when the experiences don't work out, now what do you do theologically? Then we have to get clever and say, well, God led me to that bad experience so that then I would find the good experience and value it more. You think God works that way? This doesn't seem to be an author of confusion and jumbling thoughts. It's very clear. But this is authority. 
And I can trust and rest in what his word says. So when you hear a teacher, a Bible teacher, someone on the radio, someone you watch a conference, if you hear something that doesn't sound right, it's probably not right. Write it down. Check it out. Be sure. So the listener has to learn to listen well, but it's incumbent upon the teacher and those who open Scripture and say, thus says the Lord, to be careful that they're teaching accurately and carefully the word of truth. Little ones here is not restrictive to children. It really means those who are less mature, those who follow along. Think about, I mean, in your own mind, experiences where you've seen auditoriums full of tens of thousands of people hearing a quote-unquote Christian teacher teaching nonsense. And tens of thousands of people watch it and believe everything he or she says. Beware. Beware. Because if they lead people to sin, they lead people to fail, there will be trouble. James encourages and warns that not many of you become teachers because you will incur a stricter judgment. Sobering passages for those who want to hold a Bible and tell people what God says. I remember in college, we had a a nationally uh, recognized figure going around campuses doing his his deal. And he came to our campus, and there was a group of us involved with the planning and those. And several thousand students came out to hear this guy. He was a phenomenal speaker. Before he went on stage to speak... Uh, we gathered in this room on campus, and he prayed a prayer I will never forget. And it was to the extent of, Lord, strike me dead before I do something foolish. And I was a young, impressionable, what are you, 17, 18-year-old college student, and I never heard anyone pray like that before. And it, 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 it viscerally resonated with me. Would I pray a prayer like that? God, kill me before I do something bad? Kill me before I enter into a sin that would hurt other people? It's a pretty good prayer, actually. Lord, take me home before I would scandalize your name or your word. Now, if I drop dead by the end of the sermon, that prayer was answered. You will know (laughs) for sure. Number one, warnings about false teachings. Number two, instructions about forgiving other people. Look at verse 3b. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So we move from warnings about false teachings to how to deal with a sinning and forgiving relationship. Jesus is going to talk about a brother who sins against you. Please note verse 4, if he sins against you. This passage parallels Matthew 18 in a number of ways, and this is one of the ways. First of all, sin is always against God and man. There's no such thing as a sin that's only between you and God. We saw in the prodigal, when he squandered his father's inheritance, he returns And he says, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Every sin is against God and humanity. Well, you say sins of the heart, lust, avarice, greed, pornography, uh, licentiousness, anger, whatever that we hold in our heart. That doesn't affect anyone. Yes, it does. The relational capital is strained in your world when you covetously harbor sin in your heart. It's always against God and man. 
We can read each other. We know. We feel it. We sense it. We experience it a family and a body and a community when someone's in sin. So first of all, understand that sin is always against God and man. Secondly, this is not a license to go around and be the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. It says sin's against you. Now, we have an interesting neighborhood association. Maybe you do as well. And there's a particular woman who, from time to time, walks around the association, the neighborhood. And she has a little headset and a little recorder thing on. And she stands in front of people's yards and talks about what's wrong with them. And goes on to the next one. Now, everything about my Christianity is now on the line. I think, what kind of person would want to do this for uh, their volunteer time? And the coup de grace was one day I drove up, and they had started putting an irrigation system in my front yard, and there was a big red poster taped across my front door with a cease and desist order about this construction because the permit hadn't gone through in a timely fashion. I was not a joyful, happy camper. I thought, what kind of person like that? That, that person is just sick. I mean, they need help, in my humble opinion. I'm glad they can take care of my neighbor's yard, but leave me alone. And that how we look at it? Well, we're not to play the Nazi of the neighborhood. We're not to go around seeing what's wrong. He says very clearly, sins against you. Then he says to rebuke them. Again, a hard word. Let me give you how it's used in the Gospel of Luke. One of the ways you kind of figure words out, and oh, that's a strong word. It means to express, to, uh, express to, uh, disapproval. It means to warn somebody, to confront them. But how is it used? Because usage helps us understand the feel, the sense of the word. Jesus uses the word just in the Gospel of Luke many ways. Listen to some of them. He rebukes a fever in chapter 4. He rebukes the wind on the Sea of Galilee in chapter 8. He, re he rebukes the disciples when uh, Peter says, you're the Christ of God. He rebukes them and says, don't tell anybody. He rebukes a demon in chapter 9, verse 42. He rebukes the disciples when they pass by Samaria and the, some Samaritans are, are uh, not welcoming them. And they say, let's bring fire down upon them. And Jesus rebukes the disciples and says, you don't know what kind of spirit you're speaking of. And he rebukes them when they're bringing the children to Jesus. And, and the, their disciples are keeping the kids away from Christ. And he rebukes them. Let the children come to me. So a rebuke is a confrontation. It's expressing disapproval to someone. So when someone sins, verse 3 and 4, they sin you against you. If they repent, you forgive them. Now repentance is a funny word. It simply means to change your mind means to turn from. But the challenge is, when somebody sins against you, is how do we really know they've repented? It's like when you're training your children when they're young. And when, children, when your children are young and they do something to one another, sibling rivalry is another proof of the fall. Uh, sibling rivalry is going on. He said, she said, she said, she said, whatever it is going on. And they're all spun up and you have to come in and referee. And they give story A and story B. And of course, neither did anything wrong. It was always the other's fault. And you unpack through that nonsense. And finally you'd say, okay, you were wrong here. And you say, I want you to say you're sorry to your sister. And they go, sorry. <laughs> and that's not, not going to work. Sorry. That's not going to work. What are you sorry for? 
I'm sorry that I got in trouble is what they're really sorry for. No, I'm sorry that I was, you know, stole something or hit you or whatever it is. And, and we make them say it. I'm sorry I disrespected you. Will you forgive me? I'm sorry I disrespected you. Will you forgive me? Say it like you mean it. I'm sorry. I mean, we go through this whole dalliance, right? It's a whole waste of time, but we do it anyway. You can't command a person to change his heart. But they say it. And then we teach the other child to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. Say it like you mean it. I forgive you. What's the problem? How do you quantify it? Answer, you can't. You can't. Many times the word repentance has the concept of remorse wrapped around it in the New Testament. That when a person is truly repentant, they expect nothing from the other person and they are truly sorry for what they have done or the way I like to say it, I own my sin. I don't blame anybody else for the choices or decisions I make. I own my sin regardless of what they did or didn't do. I own it. I was wrong. I sinned. Will you forgive me? We're trying to teach our kids that. Whether they get that or not remains to maturity and growth and time and experience. But if we don't teach them ABCs, they'll never be able to read the sentence, right? So we're, we're teaching a process. So when a person repents, we might want a pound of flesh. I, I, I don't think you're really sorry. And then it spirals. What Christ is saying in this passage is very profound and very simple. If they sin against you and you confront them and say, you know, this was really offensive to me. You did this to me or you said this to me. And it's one-on-one, by the way. There's other things later in Scripture. He's speaking about disciples when they are in trouble and sin's going on, that they need to talk to the one who offended them and that person needs to forgive them. So in a healthier disciple context, this transaction will go on. Well, is he really sorry? I don't know, but I'm going to forgive him anyway. Cindy and I are far from perfect parents, but we do this with all of our kids, and we are always looking for their ability to own their sin, to not blame the sibling, to not blame us, to not blame everybody else in the universe, and to just simply say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? This is sort of the baseline we're looking for. I was wrong, we've, I'm not going to blame everybody else in the universe. It's always somebody else's fault. That's a child. An adult who's growing in Christ says, I was wrong. And we're trying to get them there. And when they finally come up with, a, whether it's legitimate, sincere, or all points in between, and they say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? We always say the same thing. I say it just like this. I always tell you the same thing every time. Yes, I will forgive you. I will always forgive you. Every time I will forgive you when you ask me for forgiveness because Christ has forgiven me. Does that mean there are no consequences? No. But I will always forgive you when you admit and acknowledge your sin, your culpability, your fault, and that's what we're to do. We're to always forgive. Lewis Smead says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and then to discover that you were the prisoner. He wrote further, you will know forgiveness has begun when you recall those who hurt you 
and you feel the power to wish them well. One of the things I have done in my life of people who have injured or insulted or slandered or hurt me is to pray for them. Dear Lord, put coals on their head. No, 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 no. That's the Lord's job. Dear Lord, I'm just like them. In your eyesight, I'm just the same. I'm a sinner. Help me to forgive them. Help me to love them the way you love them. Help me to see them as no different than me. Help them to see I'm not any better than them. And you know, it takes time, but it loosens its grip on your heart. Because when those people who have offended and hurt you and sinned against you bubble up in your mind and your stomach goes into a knot and you immediately kind of tense up and torque up because of what they've done to you, you probably haven't forgiven them. It takes time. It takes time. No pound of flesh. Someone defined uh, forgiving and forgetting was forgiving and choosing not to bring it up again. Because you don't forget, especially if it was a deep wound. You will never forget what people have done to you. But you can choose not to bring it up again. When Churchill's wife had an affair, he confronted her. And she immediately apologized and told him it would never happen again. And he said to Lady Churchill, I forgive you and I will never bring it up again. And he did not. And many years later, he was given an award, and someone asked him if they do at these things, Mr. Churchill, what would you be if you could not be Sir Winston Churchill? He said, I would be Mrs. Churchill's husband. He forgave. He chose not to bring it up again. And that's a forgiving heart, a forgiving spirit. Well, number one, we are warned against false teaching. Number two, instructions about forgiving those who have hurt us and repent. And by the way, you do it again and again and again and again and again and again and again because we all sin all our lives. Thirdly, we mature in the faith. Verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now, we first have to understand what faith is and is not. Faith is not faith in faith. For any of those who, of us who've parented or been in sports, uh, kids are sports, or you played sports, there's this sort of faith in faith. And it's, it's the foul shot, it's the field goal, it's the extra point kick, it's the game-breaking point. And all the parents are out of their seats, standing on with this zen, they're going to make the goal, they're going to make the shot, they're going to make the kick. And there's this like, okay, we're going to zen our way through it. That's faith in faith, and it doesn't work. It's the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. That's faith in faith. We're not exercising our faith in our ability to have faith. That's the first thing you've got to get on the table. What are we having faith in is the issue. Whom are you trusting? What are you trusting? Where are you placing your faith? Because if it was up to Zen faith or faith in faith, those of us who could muster up, sort of contrived, I really know I can do this, would be far more faithful than the rest of us. But we're not. We all lack faith. Faith is trusting in, believing in someone to do something for you you cannot do yourself. 
The issue is the disciples don't need a quantity more faith. They need to know in whom they place faith. And that's why the illustration is so misunderstood and yet so simple. You just need that much faith in me. That's all you need. Increase our faith. Jesus says, I'm not going to increase your faith. All you need is that much faith. Do you believe me? And if you believe me and I tell you to do something, it'll happen. Now, the mulberry tree is an illustration. The apostles, disciples have not yet received the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, this will come. Between now and the end of the Gospels, these guys are hardly faithful. They scatter like bugs when the light's turned on when Jesus is arrested. Peter denies him three different times in front of witnesses. They want nothing to be associated with this man because he's crucified. And so they're worried about that and they're running scared. After Acts 2, Peter stands up and preaches one of the most incredible sermons of all time. And 3,000 people respond by faith. He even says to them, you killed this Jesus. The man who ran away because he was afraid to be associated says, you killed this Jesus. Well, how did this guy, did he go to a 12-week program? What happened between this text and Acts 2? The Holy Spirit indwelled him permanently, and he had faith in Christ to do what Christ had commanded him to do. So our faith is put in the person and work of Christ to do what he commands us to do. And if you do what he commands you to do, and it's according to his will and his word, it will work. We'll come back more to this at the end. But that's the challenge here. If you want to study more about this, uh, jot down Mark 9, 23 and 4. I love that story there. The amount of faith is insignificant. It's in whom you're placing your faith. That's the story, the quick story of the transfiguration. James, Peter, and and, um, John have gone up with Jesus. Moses and Elijah have appeared. They're glowing with the manifestation of the Shekinah of God. Their clothes are bright and white and linen. They're glowing and uh, there's a little discussion and then they disappear and they go down off the mount. They come down and they find the other disciples unable to heal a boy who is either an epileptic or demon possessed. And uh, there's a big scurry going on. A lot of people have come up, and Jesus excoriates the crowds. He says, you unbelieving generation, how long must I be with you? What does he call them? Unbelieving. You don't have faith. And then he talks to the man's, uh, the boy's father. And he says, do you believe? And the, the father says, you know, it throws him in the fire, it does this and that, and do you believe the son of man? And he says, uh, Lord, I believe, and here's the, here's the coup de grace, help me in my unbelief. It's the greatest line on faith in the New Testament. Lord, I believe, help me. Am I, I want to believe you, but I'm having trouble believing you. This isn't Zen faith. I want to believe you can help my son, but your disciples obviously couldn't. My experience is telling me otherwise about my God, but... I want to believe you. Help me. And based on that comment, Jesus heals his son. Warning against false teachings, instruction about forgiving one another. Thirdly, maturing in the faith. And maturing in the faith is understanding we're putting our faith in Christ to accomplish his will, not just Zen faith. And then finally, faithful living as a disciple, verses 7 to 10. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately 
and sit down to eat. But will you not say to him, prepare something for me to eat, then properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? Afterward, you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which are commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy. We are unworthy slaves. We have only done what we have ought to have done. This short parable is very long on meeting. It's three couplets. Again, the Middle Eastern mind is very different than ours. We have a 40-hour entitlement-oriented, 13 state and federal holidays, two, three, four weeks vacation, time off, personal time off, sick leave, pensions, compensation, merit raises. None of that existed in the first century. And I'm here to tell you it doesn't exist in most of the world today. So we've got to rethink the way we look at work in the ancient world. When these servants worked for masters, as we saw in the prodigal, I'll go back and be a hired man to my father. It's better than the way I'm living now. He's willing to work for a living, we would say. Now, I kind of hate to admit this because for obvious reasons, but my wife and I are completely sucked into Downton Abbey. Um, now, Downton Abbey, for those of you who haven't watched it, is nothing but a soap opera. I mean, let's just be honest. It's just a British version of a soap. That's all it is. But we are hook, line, and sinker. We talk about what's going to happen to the characters. I think we're really sick people, you know. And, um, but, but what it does on the, on the plus side, because I have to redeem my wasting time somehow, uh, what it does is it teaches you about what in-service means versus the upper crust of society. These do-nothings who were born into money, who've got this giant albatross of an abbey to take care of that they can't afford to take care of, have a lot of people who are in service. And the people who are in service are people that had no opportunity, no education. Most of them cannot read. Most of them are throwaway people. And they're delighted to be in service and to be part of Downton Abbey. They're delighted to work for the master, for the madam, for the lady. They're delighted to have a part of it. Now, the storyline, of course, goes all sorts of places. But my point simply is to be in service was a noble thing because you are proud to be associated with something far bigger than yourself. It's a good picture of understanding a disciple who's to be a servant of something far bigger than the world could ever offer. We're servants of a king. We're servants of a master. Jesus may call us friends, but there's no equality in our relationship. We don't call him my buddy Jesus. He's not your chum. He's your Lord. He called you a friend. And he says, if you love me, you'll obey me. It's still a vertical relationship down. He died in your place, in your stead, on your behalf, instead of you, so that you could have a relationship with him. Not that you could be his equal. And you're his child, you're his heir, you're part of his family. But you don't sit at the same head table, if you will. The disciple has a place of love and honor and duty and loyalty. He doesn't just work to get a reward like we do in our Western mindset couple of lessons and then a so what. Number one, disciples are servants. Our role, our relationship, our manner of life is to obey a king. 
I do this, I would say, 99 out of 100 mornings when I wake up. I don't implement it, but I do it in my head. I wake up, and the first thought in my head is, will I serve myself or will I serve my Savior? And that is my prayer, literally, as I get out of bed and stumble into the shower and get ready in the morning, is will I serve my Savior or will I serve myself? And do I effectively serve my Savior every day all the time? No, no, a thousand times no. But I ask the question as I get up in the morning, will I serve myself or will I serve my Savior? I was bought with a price. I am not my own. I'm a follower of Christ. Your life and mine are to serve Him if you're His disciple. It's not about me. And we live in a culture, it's all about me. They don't call it your pod, your pad, your phone. It's iPhone, iPad, and it will always be that. Soon it'll just be the little letter I. It'll be all they need. It's all me in my world. (laughs) We're all going to have carpal tunnel syndrome in our neck, whatever that would be the equivalent of before it's over with. No, we're serving a king. Secondly, salvation is by grace, not a reward of works. The disciple did not do what he was supposed to do to gain heaven. He did what he was supposed to do because he loved his Lord. Last Thursday night, we're, this summer in Inversion, we're doing a thing called the Narratives of Grace, extraordinary series. I would encourage you to stop by some Thursday night, 7 o'clock. But we've had three home runs. And this past uh, Thursday, uh, Tony Wood, Barry McCall, and uh, Hunter Murray shared their stories about grace intersecting their life. And Tony told this wonderful story about growing up in a church where he was always there and did the right thing in the right way, but he was never sure. And I think the number he used was uh, 472 sometimes. I prayed the prayer to be sure I was saved. I just didn't know for sure. And it wasn't until he understood grace. Grace. You see, we all have our systems of do's and don'ts. If I do the right thing, God will be happy with me. If I don't do the right thing, he'll be happy with me. If I do the things that are not happy with him, I'll do some things that will make him happy, and I do, don't, do, don't, do all my life, and maybe at the end he'll be happy with me. And you erase it off Lloyd's chalkboard, and you say, Grace. You can't be good enough to get to God, but God's grace was good enough to come to you. And the response of the disciple then is not to live for reward, which may happen in another section of our theology, but here he's saying you simply do it because you love him and you're a disciple and you work for him because of your salvation, because you have the honor and privilege of it. Thirdly, disciples labor out of love, duty, and honor and privilege, not because of entitlement rights or promotions we don't do these things with the hope of yes there'll be some gifts we can talk about at some future time but that's not the motivation the motivation is to thank you back to god the motivation is he saved us from sin and certain death and separation from him and our life should be a thank you back to him fourth god is your master you are not your own when uh, i had that back surgery almost two years ago now, and I wore this brace that came from about the bottom of my chin to the back of my head and down to my torso, and I had a cane, and I was basically like this for six joyful weeks. Um, And uh, my youngest daughter, Sarah, was a delightful helper. And any time I dropped something, uh, you're not supposed to bend over. Well, telling a guy he's not supposed to bend over 
you know, it's, we're just men. We're stupid. And so, uh, you know, you're always trying, you get down on your knees to pick things up, whatever. And she would run across the house, Daddy, don't do it. I'll get it. And uh, she was always, she could hear things anywhere in the house. She'd hear me drop it and she'd be there in a nanosecond running to, to pick it up. She was so helpful. And you know how the ice machine, you know, I, I don't know what is, some engineer, you can make billions fixing this. Um, it never goes in the glass. It always goes on the floor. And when you get it from the top, you always drop a certain percentage. It's Murphy's Law of Ice. I don't know what it is, but I never succeed. I go there, okay, I'm not going to drop any cubes. Four go on the floor, you know. Or if I use the thing, they go on the floor. And she would hear it because even with the little grabber thing they gave me, you can't pick up ice cubes. It doesn't work. Um, she would, I'll get it, I'll get it. She'd run across the house and pick it up. And she did that so faithfully, so many times. And I often wondered, would I run to obey my father the way she runs to help me? The so what is, do you love God? And if you are his disciple and you love him, you run. You run to obey him. John 8, 29 has always dismantled me when Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. I just collapse in a pile. I'm toast. But if you love him, you obey him. That's what a disciple does. He watches false teaching. He deals with forgiveness. He grows and matures in his or her faith. And he loves God by readily running to obey him. 